1: plushcare.com slash weight loss hello and welcome to the other half episode 3.32 alex of hesse the house of special purpose Last time we saw Alex's disastrous turn in charge of the Russian government, and how her constant shopping and changing of ministers, coupled with the struggles of fighting a war against a technologically and industrially superior foe, led to revolution in March 1917. Today we will bring Alex's story to a close, as she, along with her family, are moved from their palace at Zasko Selo through several other locations until finally ending up at the House Special Purpose in Yekaterinburg. But before we get going, I'd like to direct my Patreon supporters to the show's Patreon page, where we currently have a poll up to vote on the next podcast topic. Quite a lot of you have already had your say, but if you haven't yet cast your ballot, then head on over there and do so. If you would like to see what those three topics are, and have your say, then you will need to register as a supporter at patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. I'd also like to let you all know that the next episode is going to be another other half movie night episode. One of the primary sources for these episodes has been Robert Massey's great work, Nicholas and Alexandra, which came out in 1968. Well that book has not only been a major reference for all scholarship on the couple since it was also the inspiration behind the 1971 film of the same name starring Laurence Olivier, Janet Suzman, Michael Redgrave and I can't stress my excitement enough Tom Baker as Rasputin this film was nominated for six academy awards including best picture and is considered to be an absolute classic it is a little lengthy, just over three hours, but I hope you'll all join me in watching it and coming back to the next episode to hear what Caitlin and I thought about it. I've put the trailer in the show notes to whet all of your appetites. OK, there's a lot to cover today, so let's get started. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. As the revolution kicked off in Petrograd, Alex's mind was distracted by other, close-to-home concerns. Her children were stricken with measles, a very serious disease at the time, along with her friend Anna Virubova. So while her husband was huddled with his generals and the streets of the capital burned, she fretted over losing three of her four children, including the heir to the throne including when the Duma president Rodzianko called to tell Alex that she needed to take her children and run, as the mob was en route and there was no telling what they might do, she refused. Her husband was on the way back, and her children were sick. There was no way that she could leave. Even she, though, was forced by the circumstances to recognise the seriousness of what was going on, but she still believed in the loyalty of her personal Marine Guard regiment, which protected her and her family at Zasko Selo. Before going to bed on the Monday night, she confided in a friend quote, I don't want the girls to know anything until it is impossible to keep the truth from them. What a blessing that we have here the most devoted troops. During the night, unbeknownst to both the Tsar and the Tsarina, all the railway lines into Zasco Selo were cut. There was no way out of the palace complex for Alex and the children, they were now at the mercy of her guard regiment, all of whose comrades had already mutinied. Meanwhile, back at the Stavka, Nicholas boarded his train to head back to his capital. En route, he received a stream of messages from his ministers and officers on the ground, each direr than the last. Suddenly, the train came to an abrupt halt. The tracks ahead were blocked by soldiers' loyal to the revolution, they would have to head instead to the nearest military outpost. And while this was happening, a group of rebellious soldiers were preparing to march on Zasko-Selo. Their goal was to capture the Tsarina and Tsarevich and take them to the Petrograd Fortress of St. Peter and Paul, where they would be kept as hostages. They reached the town just outside the complex's walls and ransacked it, carrying off as much wine and vodka as they could carry. Noises of drunken shouting, breaking glass and gunfire carried as far as the palace windows, meaning that Alex couldn't keep from her children that something serious was going on. As night fell, the drunken mob began their attack, pushing the marine guards back from their four positions into the woods outside the palace. Luckily for the imperial family, though, a rumour spread through the attacking mutineers that fresh troops loyal to the Tsar were on their way, and they turned back. The family were safe, for now. Their thoughts turned to Nicky, whose train was due to arrive the following morning, but it never came. Indeed, it wasn't until many hours later that they heard that it had been blocked. But they received no news as to where Nicky was, or what his next move would be. As the children still suffered in bed, Alex fretted all day, worrying about her husband and the fate of the monarchy. As it wore on, she started to notice that palace staff and soldiers in the Marine Guard were beginning to slip away. And by the following morning, they had all gone. Other than a handful of loyal attendants, everyone had vanished. The palace was now totally undefended. When she found out, Alex cried out, My sailors, my own sailors, I can't believe it! About 200 miles away, Niki received an answer to a telegram that he had sent to Rodzianko. In it, he had finally given the concessions that so many had wanted for decades, but these were no longer enough. In his reply, the Juma president was blunt and to the point. Quote, His Majesty is unable to realise what is happening in the capital. A terrible revolution has broken out. Hatred of the Empress has reached fever pitch. Don't send any more troops. I'm hanging by a thread myself. Power is slipping out of my hands. The measures you propose are too late. The time for them is gone. There is no return. This was then followed by more messages from Nicholas's generals and his family. To save the dynasty, the army, and the country, he had to resign. Only this might appease the revolution. After reading these messages, the Tsar smoked a cigarette and looked out the window to the snow-covered field beyond. He then turned around and signed the letter of abdication. He initially left the throne to his son Alexei, but a few hours later, he changed his mind. How could he leave his sick 12-year-old son this heavy burden? Instead, he resigned the throne to his brother, Grand Duke Michael. He wrote in his diary that night, The crux of the matter is that it is necessary to take this step, for the sake of Russia's salvation and of maintaining calm in the army at the front. All around is betrayal, cowardice and deceit. The following message was telegraphed into Petrograd. In the days of the great struggle against the foreign enemies, who for nearly three years have tried to enslave our fatherland, the Lord God has been pleased to send down on Russia a new heavy trial. Internal popular disturbances threaten to have a disastrous effect on the future conduct of this persistent war. The destiny of Russia, the honour of our heroic army, the welfare of the people, and the whole future of our dear fatherland demand that the war should be brought to a victorious conclusion, whatever the cost. The cruel enemy is making his last efforts. And already the hour approaches when our glorious army, together with our gallant allies, will crush him. In these decisive days in the life of Russia, we thought it our duty of conscience to facilitate for our people the closest union possible and a consolidation of all the forces for the speedy attainment of victory. In agreement with the Imperial Duma, we have thought it well to renounce the throne of the Russian Empire, and to lay down the supreme power. As we do not wish to be parted from our beloved son, we transmit the succession to our brother, the Grand Duke Michael Alexandrovich, and give him our blessing to mount the throne of the Russian Empire. We direct our brother to conduct the affairs of state in full and inviolable union with the representatives of the people in the legislative bodies on those principles which will be established by them, and on which he will take an inviolable oath. In the name of our dearly beloved homeland, we call on our faithful sons of the fatherland to fulfil their sacred duty to the fatherland, to obey the Tsar in this heavy moment of national trials, and to help him, together with the representatives of the people, to guide the Russian Empire on the road to victory, welfare and glory. May the Lord God help Russia. Nicholas II. This was read out to a crowd that had gathered outside the headquarters of Russia's new provisional government, but the reaction was not what Nicholas or the new Tsar Michael would have wanted. They howled with anger and went on a rampage, destroying all statues and symbols of Tsardom. They had not fought and died just to see another Romanov take the throne. They wanted a republic. The new Tsar went to the provisional government and asked them if they could guarantee his safety if he would remain in power. They said no and produced another letter of abdication, but this one had no mention of a successor. But Michael signed it anyway. And with that, 304 years of Romanov rule came to an end in Russia. The monarchy was over, replaced with an uneasy joint rulership of the Provisional Government and the Revolutionary Soviets. Cut off as they were, it was not until a day later that news reached Zasko of the dual abdication. The report was broken to Alex by her brother-in-law, Grand Duke Paul. Quote, it's all lies, she shouted at him. The newspaper invented it. I believe in God and the army. To which Paul replied simply, quote, God and the army are on the side of the revolution. Alex tried to regain her composure, but then the enormity of what had just happened crashed all over her, and she burst into tears. She ran out of the room into the arms of a friend, blubbering over sobs quote, My poor darling, all alone there and suffering. My God, what he must have suffered, and I was not there to console him. Pierre Gilliard, the children's tutor recalled the following, quote, No one can have any idea of what the Tsarina suffered during these days. She reached the extreme limits of human resistance in this last trial, in which originated that wonderful and radiant serenity which was to sustain her and her family to the day of their death. The Tsarina's despair almost defied imagination, but her great courage did not desert her. I saw her in Alexei's room that same evening. Her face was terrible to see, but with a strength of will which was almost superhuman, she had forced herself to come to the children's rooms as usual, so that the young invalids should suspect nothing. The following morning, a telephone call came through to Zasko Selo. A servant burst into Alex's rooms, telling her excitedly that it was Nicky. When she picked up the receiver, she heard her husband's voice for the first time in weeks. It was quiet and sombre. You know, he asked. Yes, she whispered back. Over the next few days, Alex kept herself busy. The first thing that she had to do was destroy all of her personal correspondence. She didn't want anything surviving that might incriminate her or Nicky. The only ones that she kept were letters from the war years, as she hoped that those would prove that she had been no traitor. The next thing Was to receive visitors from the new regime. They were polite, inquiring after her health and that of the children. They told her that they meant her no harm, but they needed to put them under protective house arrest along with her husband as soon as he arrived. Finally, she had to do the thing she most dreaded tell the children what happened. She told her daughters herself. What she said is not recorded anywhere, but we do know that they all burst into tears. It was up to Pierre Gilliard to tell Alexei. He was confused, quote, But if there isn't a Tsar, who will govern Russia? Gilliard replied, quote, I don't know. Perhaps nobody now. Alex's life changed forever after the overthrow of the monarchy. But initially, things were not so bad. She was no longer a Tsarina, but she, along with her family, were permitted to stay at Zasko-Selo in great comfort. They still had attendants, servants, and all the trappings of luxury. Indeed, if you didn't look too closely, you may have struggled to see the difference. But scratch the surface, and you'd see the truth. For all the comfort they were under house arrest. They were only allowed outside for a limited time each day, and when they did venture beyond the confines of the palace, they were heckled mercilessly from the boundary wall. They were not allowed to make telephone calls. All incoming and outgoing mail was searched and checked. All of Alex's closest friends, including Anna Virubova, were forced to leave, and her personal entourage was significantly reduced. The soldiers guarding the palace were not the deferential sort that they were accustomed to, but rude and sometimes cruel. They stole items from them, including the children, knowing that there was nothing they could do to stop them. And occasionally they leered at Alex as she changed in her room, as she was not allowed to close her curtains. Alex herself fell into a deep depression. Now that she no longer had a role or function other than as a mother, She spent hours in her chambers, lost in her thoughts and memories. She began to realise the role that she had played in all that had happened, the warnings that she had scorned and ignored. The rest of the family bore the situation somewhat better. Indeed, Nicky appeared like a new man. All the weight of responsibility had been taken from his shoulders, and he delighted in spending more time with his children and in mundane pursuits such as chopping wood. But Alex took many months to come to terms with her situation. It didn't help that she was the subject of a government investigation led by the Justice Minister and rising star in the provisional government, Alexander Kerensky. He personally led a search of the palace and interviewed both Alex and Nicky himself. Alex answered his questions honestly. She'd only ever wanted to serve her husband as best she could, and in any way she could. She listened to Rasputin because she believed him to be a man of God. Her mistakes were not born of malice or treachery, but from her own attempts to do what she believed to be right. After a three-week investigation, Kerensy declared Alex innocent, telling Nikki that, quote, your wife does not lie. In fact, though, the whole investigation was a bit of a sham. As I've said a couple of times, the new system governing Russia was based on a power-sharing agreement between a provisional government made up mainly from members of the Duma, and the Petrograd Soviet, which was a socialist workers' council, which considered itself to be the voice of the common worker and soldier. The Soviet wanted the Tsar and Tsarina brought to the capital, or even just executed summarily, but the provisional government, increasingly dominated by Kerensky, would not allow that to happen. Now, I'm not going to go into the mire that was Russian politics between the revolutions. That is a story for another podcast but suffice it to say that while Alexander Kerensky was in power, the Romanovs were safe. If he were to fall, well, they'd be in danger. The main problem that Kerensky faced, though, was working out what to do with the royal family. This house arrest was really only a temporary measure. It couldn't last forever. His hope, just like the Romanovs, would be that their family across the seas would come to the rescue. Speaking of which, over in the UK... King George V was in a quandary. Alex and Nicky were both his first cousin, and while they were very different monarchs from two very different countries, they had always been close. On hearing about the Romanovs' overthrow, George wrote to Nicky saying, "...events of the last week have deeply distressed me. My thoughts are constantly with you, and I will always remain your devoted friend, as I have always been in the past." On the other hand, the British government, led by Prime Minister David Lloyd George, had a very different reaction to the revolution. He wrote to the new government in Petrograd, It is with the sentiments of the profoundest satisfaction that the people of Great Britain have learned that their great ally Russia now stands with the nations which base their institutions upon responsible government. We believe the revolution is the greatest service which they have yet made to the cause for which the Allied peoples have been fighting since August 1914. It reveals the fundamental truth that this war is, at bottom, a struggle for popular government as well as for liberty. Both the new Russian foreign minister and King George were initially extremely keen for the Romanos to be sent to live in exile in the UK, but standing in their way was the British Foreign Office. They were worried about what signals it may send if they were seen to be harbouring exiled autocrats. They pushed the Romanovs to be sent somewhere else where they had family, Denmark perhaps, but the Romanovs would only countenance Britain. Only there would they be safe. Eventually, after much umming and ahhing, the British government agreed to offer asylum to the Romanovs and cabled the news to their embassy in Petrograd. Indeed, they even got agreement from the Kaiser that any British warship carrying the Romanovs to safety would not be fired upon. But then came the twist. King George got cold feet. He could see that, in Europe, the popular tide was turning against monarchies, and he didn't want to endanger his throne or his family's safety merely to save his cousins. He had already changed the family name from Saxe-Coburg-Gotha to Windsor to remove any hint of Germanness from his family. He didn't want this link with autocracy to be attached to him. He withdrew his support and threw his weight now firmly behind not allowing the Romanovs to come. His secretary wrote to the foreign secretary, quote, As you are doubtless aware, the king has strong personal friendship for the emperor, but his majesty cannot help doubting, not only on account of the dangers of the voyage, but on the general grounds of expediency, whether it is advisable that the imperial family should take up residency in this country. The British government was shocked at this volte-face and told the king that it was too late. The invitation had already been sent. But the king was insistent, writing back that, quote, the residence in this country of the emperor and empress would be strongly resented by the people and would certainly compromise the position of the king and queen. In the face of the king's insistence, the British government withdrew their invitation. King George had the chance to save his cousin, but he had refused it. It would be a decision he would regret for the rest of his life. Back in Russia, the political situation was getting, if possible, even more fractious. The possibility of angry mobs or mutinous soldiers coming and storming Zasko-Selo was growing ever more likely. Alexander Kerensky, now officially in charge of the provisional government, told the Tsar that he could no longer guarantee his family's safety while they remained so close to the capital. It was decided that the family should be moved to Bolsk in Siberia. As they and their servants packed their things, Alexandra was seen walking the corridors of the Alexander Palace, taking one last look at the place that she had once considered to be her safe haven against the dangerous world outside. The whole trip had to be undertaken in secret, as the train would be passing through territory that was more or less lawless, and so the train that carried them east was disguised as a Japanese Red Cross train. They all gathered in the Great Hall of the Palace at half past one in the morning, but they were all forced to wait in worried unease for four hours as the train was delayed in arriving. Once they finally got on board, the journey took a week to complete. The dining car of the train was well stocked with wine, and the cabins were comfortable, but there still must have been a deep sense of foreboding. On the third day, they were transferred to a ship, which would take them downriver to Tobolsk. On the way, they steamed past Rasputin's village, fulfilling a prophecy that the Starrets had once made to Alex, that one day she would see it with her own eyes. Tobolsk was a fortress town of some 20,000 inhabitants. The imperial family was quartered in the governor's mansion, a large two-story building which had seen better days. It wasn't large enough to house all of the royal household, so the servants had to live off-site, and the children had to share rooms. The house was, in effect, a prison. A wall was erected around the building, and since there was no garden, they seldom left the confines of the house. The soldiers guarding the Romanos were rude and unfriendly at first. But over time, they grew to rather like their captives, especially the grand duchesses. Aged between 16 and 21, the daughters of a Tsar would typically have been out in society by now. But these grand duchesses had been cloistered in Tsar Selo for almost all their lives. They were not used to being surrounded by so many young men, and so they would flirt innocently with them, which, naturally, the soldiers rather enjoyed. The townspeople were, in general, very friendly to the imperial family, and would often bring them gifts of butter, eggs and sugar. Indeed, so many people came to look at them through the windows that the guards had to shoo them away. Alex, at first, rather enjoyed this life of exile. She had never been one for the great outdoors, and although her life was now rather less comfortable, it also had none of the old stresses of arguing with ministers or dealing with snooty aristocrats. She could spend her time with her family, her trinkets, and her happy memories. After a while, and particularly once winter arrived, and the house became icy cold, boredom set in. Her mood grew ever more fatalistic, her mind dwelling now on the bad memories of the past, and all the mistakes that she had made. In this time, she began once more to lose herself in her faith. Not permitted to go regularly to church, she fell back on prayer and religious texts, for sustenance and nourishment. She had almost given up on life and was readying herself for her next journey, one that promised eternal salvation. News from the outside world was scarce, but even they heard the momentous news that, on the 7th of November 1917, revolution once more came to Russia. Alexander Kerensky's government was overthrown by Vladimir Lenin and the Bolsheviks. It was swift and they didn't have much popular support, but the communists were now in charge of the Russian state. This spelled disaster for the Romanovs. Although they were republicans, the old provisional government had generally been in favour of treating the former royal family with dignity. Certainly they didn't wish them dead. Lenin, on the other hand, harboured a deep personal hatred for the Romanovs. As a communist, he was diametrically opposed to everything the imperial family stood for, but his ire had a very personal dimension as well. His elder brother had been executed for plotting to kill Nicholas's father, Alexander III, and he had long since harboured a desire for revenge. For a while, though, nothing much changed in Tobolsk. The children passed their days in lessons, playing games or acting out plays. Nicholas took part in his family activity of sawing wood, and Alex sat glumly, not moving or doing much at all. The first significant change that happened after the Bolsheviks took power was a literal changing of the guard. Previously, the imperial family had been guarded by army soldiers, but now it would be hardened communists that watched over the Romanovs. The family were put on soldiers' rations, and many servants had to be dismissed on the grounds of cost. They had hardly been living a life of luxury before, but now things became even bleaker. Their clothes became dirty and worn. Items such as butter and coffee were considered too frivolous to be allowed. Their meals, once so opulent, were now simple peasants' fare. They had once been the wealthiest family in the world. Now they were broke. The new guards were determined to inflict every humiliation on the imperial family they carved obscene messages and images on the girls' swing set. They limited their time outside to the bare minimum and would take positions from them without warning. The few servants left the family were forced to squeeze into cramped rooms in the mansion, sometimes three having to share a bed. Alexei had not had a bad accident in some time, but in March 1918, he suffered from a bad cough that caused an internal haemorrhage, which caused him immense pain. In to Anna Avirbova, Alex described it as being as bad as the attack that he had had in Spala all those years before. While this was happening, the family heard the news that the Bolsheviks had concluded a humiliating peace agreement with Germany. In one of the most one-sided treaties in history, Russia agreed to hand over 32% of its land, 54% of its factories, and 89% of its coal mines to Germany in exchange for peace. There were two reasons why the Bolsheviks were so keen for peace at any price. The first was that it had been one of Lenin's big slogans before the revolution, one that he had to deliver on quickly. And second, because civil war had erupted, and he needed every available soldier to cling on to power. The forces opposing Lenin and his Red Army are known as the Whites, and they were led by a motley collection of former Tsarist officers and soldiers dispossessed nobles, and clerics worried by the communists' anti-religious rhetoric. Now that there were pro-Tsarist armies in the field, the issue of what to do with Romanov's shot up the agenda. The nightmare scenario for Lenin and the Bolsheviks was that a white army would rescue the Tsar and march on their new capital of Moscow with him at their head. Tobolsk had been chosen originally for being broadly sympathetic to the Tsar, the Bolsheviks needed to move him to somewhere more reliably communist. Lenin dispatched a commissar named Vasily Yakovlev to Dubolsk, with orders that the family needed to be moved. However, when he arrived and met the family, Yakovlev realised that Alexei could not be moved safely. He sent a coded message back to Moscow, which read, "...only the principal part of the baggage can be transferred." mean that only Nicholas could, at present, be moved safely. This plan was approved, and Yakovlev broke the news to Nicholas that he alone was to go, while his family would follow later. Nicholas tried to refuse to go. He would not go anywhere without his family. To which Yakovlev said chillingly, quote, Then I must take you by force. Before adding, quote, Be calm. I am responsible with my life for your safety. If you do not want to go alone, you can take as many people as you wish. These words did not reassure Alex, who turned red with fury and screamed at Yakovlev, You want to tear him away from his family? How can you? How? His son is sick. He can't go. He must stay with us. This is too cruel. She then began to manically pace back and forth, turning over the situation in her mind. She was in the horns of quite the dilemma, go with her husband or stay with her son. She saw herself as Nikki's backbone, as the person that prevented him from doing anything rash or short-sighted. In her mind, if he was to go alone, Nicholas could be persuaded or forced by the communists to do something that would make their situation worse, potentially endangering their lives. On the other hand, Alexei was still very sick and without Rasputin available to care for him, there was no guarantee he would survive. Without anyone watching over him, what was to stop the communists from doing him greater harm? She confided in Pierre Gilliard, who recorded in his memoirs what Alex said to him. I can't let the Tsar go alone. They're going to force his hand by making him feel anxious about his family. The Tsar is necessary to them. They feel he alone represents Russia. Together we shall be in a better position to resist them, and I ought to be at his side in the time of trial. But the boy is still so ill. Suppose some complication sets in. Oh God, what ghastly torture! For the first time in my life, I don't know what I ought to do. After agonising on the decision for a while, she decided that she had to trust her staff and children to look after Alexei the best thing that she could do for all of them in the long run was to help her husband. She told Nikki that she would go with them, along with her daughter Maria and a few select members of the household. Olga, the eldest daughter, would be left in charge of Alexei's welfare with the support of Tatiana and Anastasia. That night, Alex sat with the daughters that she was leaving behind. Gilliard recalled that, quote, the eyes were swollen with crying. Early the following morning, a group of carriages arrived to take them all away. To where? They did not know. Indeed, their final destination was still up in the air, even as the carriages left to Lenin was keen to bring Nicholas to Moscow to stand trial, just as Charles I had done in England, and Louis XVI had in France after their respective revolutions. But, in order to get to Moscow, they would have to pass through territory controlled by the Ural Soviet. Based in the city of Yekaterinburg, the Ural Soviet had a reputation for being one of the most hardline and violent Soviets in Russia. They wanted Nicholas to be transferred there, but Yakovlev knew that if he was to go there, it was unlikely that he would ever be allowed to leave. If Lenin had been in a more powerful position, he might have imposed his will and insisted on Nicholas being moved to Moscow. But he could not risk upsetting the powerful Ural Soviet, and so he gave his permission for the Tsar and Tsarina to be transferred to Yekaterinburg. When they arrived in the city, they were met by the leadership of the Ural Soviet and a hostile crowd. They were bundled into cars and taken through the back streets of the city, to a mansion that had been seized from a local merchant. It was known locally as Apatyev House. But after works had been done to it to turn it effectively into a secure prison, it received a new ominous name. The House of Special Purpose. The house was now ringed entirely by a wooden fence that reached the eaves of the two-storey house, and all the windows were whitewashed so that no one could see in or out. The Imperial family were confined to the top floor of the house, with Nicky and Alex allocated the largest room and their children crammed into another. While she waited for the rest of her family to arrive, Alex tried to decorate the house as best she could with the items they had brought with them, but no matter how you dressed it, the place was a bleak prison. As soon as they were permitted, Alex wrote to her daughters in Tobolsk. Knowing that the letter would be checked by her guards, she couldn't say much, but she did warn that everything they had been brought had been searched, including their medicines. Medicines was the family code name for Jewel's. Alex had warned her children that, if she sent them this message, they were to take all of their jewels and conceal them. They were the only things of real value that the family had left, and should they manage to escape, could provide for their livelihoods. Precious stones of incredible value were sewn into the hems of skirts and shirts, on the undersides of belts, behind buttons, and under the rims of hats. Mostly, though, they were carried in their bodices and undergarments. Their clothes now must have weighed an absolute ton, but their financial future was safeguarded. The children and the rest of the household joined their parents a few weeks later, after Alexei had been deemed fit to travel. Still unable to walk, he had to be carried into the house A special purpose. They also had to leave their tutor Pierre Gilliard at the door, as he was not permitted to enter. He recalled his last sight of the Romanos in his memoirs. Quote, about nine o'clock the next morning, several carriages were drawn up alongside our train, and I saw four men go towards the children's carriage. A few minutes passed, and then Nagorni, the sailor attached to Alexey Nikolaevich, passed my window, carrying the sick boy in his arms. Behind him came the grand duchesses, loaded with valises and small personal belongings. I tried to get out, but was roughly pushed back into the carriage by the sentry. I came back to the window. Tatiana Nikolaevna came last, carrying her little dog and struggling to drag a heavy brown valise. It was raining, and I saw her feet sink into the mud at every step. Nagorny tried to come to her assistance. He was roughly pushed back by one of the commissaries. A few minutes later, the carriages drove off with the children in the direction of the town. How little I suspected, but I was never to see them again. The Imperial family had once lived in a palace with a staff of hundreds. Now, just eight remained. There was their doctor, two cooks, a footman, a valet, two manservants, and the sailor that carried Alexei around. They were guarded by a rotating detachment of, well, you'd think they'd be soldiers, but actually they were local factory workers, most of them teenagers or in their early 20s. Their inexperience meant that they were a real menace. They were frequently caught drunk, asleep at their posts, and letting people treat the Romanovs like a captive peep show. One guard once accidentally fired his rifle into the ceiling of the Grand Duchess's bedroom, causing them to scream with fear. Another dropped a grenade into the garden for a laugh, and still one other shot at Anastasia while she was stood at the house's one window that opened, the bullet only narrowly missing her. The man in charge was a man called Alexander Avadeyev, and he was a real brute of a man. Coarse and perpetually drunk, he was determined to make life as hard as possible for the couple he called Nicholas the blood drinker and the German bitch. Life in the house of special purpose consisted of constant humiliation. Guards would enter the family's rooms at any time, day or night. They regularly made lewd jokes and insulting remarks. They made the grand duchesses play revolutionary songs for them on the piano. They drew pornographic pictures in the bathroom. Almost all their possessions were unceremoniously chucked into an outhouse, meaning that they wore through every item of clothing they had. The only food they were permitted was that which was left over from the guards' meals. And they were only allowed outside for exercise for one hour per day. While the family tried to stay as active as they could... Alex was more or less confined to her wheelchair, and while her children attempted to keep her happy and occupied, it was to little effect. Her appearance was later described thusly, quote, She was severe-looking, and had the appearance and manners of a haughty, grave woman. Sometimes we used to discuss amongst ourselves, and we decided that she was different, and not exactly like a Tsarina. She seemed older than the Tsar. Grey hair was plainly visible on her temples, and her face was not the face of a young woman. Their days were monotonous. After morning prayers and breakfast, they would be subjected to a roll call. During the day, they would read, sew or play cards, but also mucked in with the household tasks, including cleaning, laundry and cooking. The grand duchesses particularly enjoyed the latter task, especially making bread. However, the constant emotion that they must have felt was boredom mixed with fear they knew that they could be moved at any time, for any reason, and the next move could be their last. After a while, however, the guards' attitudes towards the imperial family began to change. One of their number, Anatoly Yakimov, later stated that, quote, all my evil thoughts about the Tsar disappeared after I had stayed a certain time amongst the guards. After I had seen them several times, I began to feel entirely different towards them. I began pity them. Like their counterparts in Tobolsk, the guards became particularly affectionate towards the grand duchesses. They were around the same age, and their innocence and playfulness were utterly at odds with the Romanov's reputation for bloodthirsty cruelty. Some historians have even claimed that 19-year-old Maria struck up a sexual relationship with one of the guards, and that they were only discovered during a surprise inspection. These claims are not particularly well supported, but do indicate the lax attitude of security and discipline that pervaded the house of special purpose. The thought of escape was never far from the imperial family's minds. At least four letters made their way into the Tsar's hands in the house of special purpose, smuggled in by sympathetic nuns who were permitted to visit the Romanovs. They informed Nicholas of the situation in the ongoing Russian civil war, and told him that a white army was only 50 miles away from Yekaterinburg, They told him to ensure his family were ready to leave at any moment. Nicky replied with an exact description of the house and their daily movements, and a later letter from Alex gave further details. But they quickly became suspicious of the motives of their so-called saviours, especially when they encouraged the family to make a break for it. And it's quite possible that they were right to do so. Recent research has suggested that these letters were in fact written by members of the Russian secret police, Looking for a justification, looking for the justification of an escape attempt to allow them to kill the imperial family. What the letters had not lied about, though, was the situation in the Russian Civil War. Western Russia was occupied by Germans following the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, while in Siberia, around fifty thousand Czech prisoners of war took up arms against the Bolsheviks. Linking up with a local White Army, they began to march west, threatening the Urals. All lines of communication other than telegraph were cut between Moscow and Yekaterinburg, and while the Red Army still held the region, they were not strong enough to hold off a major white offensive. This all meant their decision would have to be made about what to do with the imperial family. They could not be allowed to fall into white hands. It was for this reason that in early July 1918, Avadiev was dismissed from his position in charge of the Romanovs, with the job passing to Yakov Yurovsky. A committed Bolshevik, he was totally loyal to his masters in the Ural Soviet, and he quickly set to his task of improving security. The factory worker guards were replaced with army regulars who were not allowed to speak to the prisoners. Meanwhile, further west, Lenin conducted a test to see what might happen if he had the imperial family killed. Nicholas's brother, Grandjeep Michael, had been living under house arrest in the city of Perm. Without warning, he was taken by Red Army soldiers to a nearby wood and shot. The Bolsheviks spread a story that he had been kidnapped by white soldiers to hide their crime, and to test to see if such a story would be believed. At the same time, they spread another story that the imperial family themselves had been killed, again to test the reaction. Given what would later happen, It seems clear what result they had derived from these tests. The decision to kill the Romanovs was taken personally by Lenin, and his orders were dispatched to the Ural Soviet, who were only too happy to oblige. Responsibility for arranging the murder fell to Yurovsky. On the 13th of July, he permitted for the first time the local priest to come to the house to give service to Romanovs. He wanted to lull them into a false sense of security that things would be getting better, Little did they know that the priest was delivering them their last rites. The next day, he arranged to have the house cleaned, letting the grand duchesses assist the hired help. One of the cleaning women recalled that the young grand duchesses were quote, spirited and breathed a love of life, while Alex was quote, tired and sick and lacking color. The last record from Alex that we have is a diary entry on the sixteenth of July. Quote, Grey morning, later lovely sunshine. Baby has a slight cold. All went out for half an hour in the morning. Olga and I arranged our medicines. Tatiana read spiritual reading. Supper at eight, played cards with Nikki. Half ten, to bed. She also referenced the fact that their kitchen boy had been sent home that day. Urozki claimed that it was the request of his uncle, but the real reason was that he didn't want the blood of a 14-year-old boy on his hands. At half past one in the morning of the 17th of July, Yurovsky woke the imperial family. He said that, for their safety, they needed to be moved to the cellar immediately. The White Army was nearby, an artillery barrage may open up at any moment. He gave them some time to dress and left the room. The Romanovs clothed themselves ensuring that they were carrying as many of their concealed jewels as they could. The girls' underclothes were now mosaics of precious gems, while Alexei was wearing an undershirt that resembled chain mail. When they emerged, first came Nicholas, carrying Alexei, both dressed in their army uniforms. Next came Alice on Olga's arm, limping on a cane, followed by the girls, dressed in black skirts and white blouses. Tatiana carried her King Charles Spaniel, Jemmy, and behind them came their remaining servants. They were led down the stairs to the basement, where they were lined up. Now, just like with Ella's murder, we have a first-hand account of what happened next. This time, it's from Yurovsky himself. Quote, Having gone down to the room, I ordered them to stand along the wall. Obviously, at that moment, they did not imagine what awaited them. Alexandra Fyodorovna said... There are not even chairs here. Nicholas was carrying Alexei. He stood in the room with him in his arms. Then I ordered a couple of chairs. On one of them, to the right of the entrance almost in the corner, Alexandra Fyodorovna sat down. The daughters and Anna Demidova stood next to her to the left of the entrance. Beside them Alexei was sat in an armchair. Behind him Dr Bodkin, the cook and the others stood. Nicholas stood opposite Alexei. At the same time I ordered the men to go down and to be ready in their places when the command was given. Nicholas had put Alexei on the chair and stood in such a way that he shielded him. Alexei sat in the left corner from the entrance and so far as I can remember I said to Nicholas approximately this. His royal and close relatives inside the country and abroad were trying to save him but the Soviet of workers deputies resolved to shoot them. He asked, ''What?'' and turned towards Alexei. At that moment, I shot him and killed him outright. He did not get time to face us to get an answer. That moment, disorganised, not-orderly firing began. The room was small, but everyone could come in and carry out the shooting according to the set order. But many shot through the doorway. Bullets began to ricochet because the wall was brick. Moreover, the firing intensified when the victim's shouts arose. I managed to stop the firing, but with great difficulty. Alex was killed early on. She managed to quickly cross herself after her husband was shot, before taking a bullet through the skull, killing her instantly. Their children were not so lucky. The jewel-encrusted clothes stopped and deflected the bullets that came their way. Alexei had fallen off his chair and, clutching his father's arm, cried out in pain. Yurovsky himself stepped forward and shot him in the head. Olga, Tatiana, Maria, and Anastasia dropped into a crouch and were hiding in two of the corners, obscured by the acrid smoke let off by all the guns. Splattered with their parents' blood, they screamed in terror as the executioners closed on them, bayonets fixed. They lunged at the young women, but their bayonets would not pierce their clothes. Once again, their medicines had saved their lives. But not for long as bullets finally took their lives, along with the remaining servants. The last to die was Tatiana's dog, which alone managed to escape, before finally being caught, killed and tossed into trucks with the rest of them. Their bodies were taken to a nearby forest and dumped in an unmarked, pre-dug pit. Eight days later, the White Army took Yekaterinburg and raced towards the House of Special Purpose, They found it deserted, and when they searched the cellar, they found it spotlessly clean, but the walls peppered with bullet holes. When they looked closer, they found specks of dried blood between the floorboards. It was clear what had happened. They immediately conducted a search of the surrounding area to try and find the bodies, but to no avail. Indeed, their bodies would not be discovered until the late 1970s, and even then proper excavations were not permitted until the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. They found the bodies of Nicholas, Alex, and three of their daughters and all the servants, but they were missing Alexei and one of the daughters, either Maria or Anastasia. In 1998, at a grand ceremony at the Cathedral of St Peter and Paul, the historic final resting place of the Romanov Tsar's, the remains of the imperial family and their servants were brought in inside miniature coffins. One by one, they were lowered into the vault, with Nicholas's reinterment, accompanied by a 19-round salute. The bodies of Alexei and his remaining sister were finally discovered in 2007, and so far as I can tell, they currently remain unburied. The Orthodox Church, repressed inside the Soviet Union, had established an exile community outside Russia and had declared the whole imperial family as martyred saints. After the fall of communism and re-establishment of the church, their sainthood was confirmed, albeit at the lower status of passion-bearers. So, after seven episodes and over 50,000 words of transcript, how are we to sum up Alex's life? Do we see her as a martyr, or as a loving wife and mother whose only crime was to try and protect her family. As a foolish and misguided confidant whose cajoling inactions accelerated the fall of a 300-year-old dynasty and ushered in the age of Lenin and Stalin. As an unfortunate woman, ill-suited to the very public life that she had reluctantly agreed to live due to the life of her husband. Yep, 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 and yep to a few more things besides. She is worthy of blame and admiration. She's both inspiring and incredibly frustrating. She with all these things and more. Ultimately, it's up to you to draw your own conclusions. But for me, she was a woman thrust into a time and place in which she was fundamentally ill-suited. Had she married any of the other men that sought her hand, she would have been a footnote in history. Had Nicholas not been the Tsar she would have been happy to live with him in obscurity. But she did marry the Tsar, and her actions contributed to his fall and the deaths of him and her children, along with millions of others. She is a tragic figure worthy of Shakespeare, and one whose life will continue to be an object of fascination for centuries to come.